0: passions, ideology, and unbridled favoritism. Now, I'm not quite certain what their answer is going to be.
1: Excellent. Uh, Next, we will hear from Jim Loeb. Jim Loeb served as the Chief Washington Bureau for Interpress Service from 1980 to 1985 and again from 1998 until 2015. He has managed, currently manages and produces Loeblog, a great blog that is primarily focused on U.S. policy toward the Middle East. Last year, the blog, quite appropriately, received the Author Ross Award for Distinguished Reporting and Analysis of Foreign Affairs from the American Academy of Diplomacy. Jim has been a long-time observer of
0: neoconservatives, and he will discuss American neoconservatives' a history and an overview. Okay, this timer intimidates me, so... um, It goes fast. Yeah, (laughs) that makes it worse. Thanks, Larry. (laughs) Um, So I'm gonna speak quickly. I've been asked to give a kind of neoconservatism 101 over the next 15 minutes or so, and that's a big challenge for me. It took me seven hours to get through it when I addressed the Institute for American Studies in Beijing 12 years ago when Chinese analysts were desperately trying to figure out why the United States had been so stupid as to invade Iraq. So I'm going to start by summing up. If I were asked to boil down neoconservatism into its essential elements, that is, those that have remained consistent over the past nearly 50 years, I would say the following. First, a Manichean view of the world in which good and evil are constantly at war and the United States has an obligation to lead the forces for good around the globe. Second, a belief in the moral exceptionalism of both the United States and Israel, and the absolute moral necessity for the United States to defend Israel's security. Third, a conviction that in order to keep evil at bay, the United States must have and be willing to exercise the military power necessary to defeat any and all challenges anywhere and there's a corollary to this, force is the only language that evil and adversaries understand. Fourth, the 1930s, what with Munich, appeasement, Chamberlain, and then Churchill, the Redeemer, taught us everything we need to know about evil and how to thwart it. And fifth, democracy is generally desirable but it always depends on who wins. (laughs) Now, this to me is neoconservatism in a nutshell. So I could stop here, but I still have 15 minutes and 46 seconds. (laughs) So let's review very briefly the context in which neoconservatism became a serious movement here. Well, many of you have probably heard of its Trotskyite origins. The movement itself as we know it today dates mainly from the 1960s. It was in that decade that you saw the startling rise of Holocaust consciousness, beginning with the Eichmann trial in Israel and the Oscar-winning movie uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, both of which had a major impact not only on the Jewish community, well, not only on Israel and on the Jewish community here in this country, but the general public here as well. These events were followed by the rise of the new left, of which I was (laughs) one, the counterculture, hippies, the anti-war movement, the black power movements, as well as the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, all of which left a number of mainly, but by no means exclusively, Jewish public intellectuals and liberals feeling in the words of neocon patriarch Irving Kristol, quote, mugged by reality, and mugged in a reality in a way that launched them on a rightward trajectory, hence neoconservative. That trajectory gained momentum in the early 1970s,
1: Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism Versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey i all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles, plus you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me, I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey y'all, how's it going? Welcome to the show, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Hey, today is the day of uh, Grant Smith's big thing, Israel's influence, good or bad for America. If you're in D.C., head on over to the Washington Press Club right now, the National Press Club. It's going to be going on all day. Uh, Right now, Jim Loeb is talking, and I want to hear it.
0: Major roles in the movement over time.
1: Israel'sinfluence.org. It's
0: true that most neoconservatives are Jewish and not only Jewish, but increasingly Republican. So it's very important to stress now that the very large majority of Jews in this country are neither neoconservative nor Republican, a source of great frustration to neoconservatives, Jewish neoconservatives in particular, over the last 30 years. Just on Monday, for example, the Wall Street Journal whose editorial pages are probably the country's most influential neoconservative media platform, ran an op-ed entitled, quote, The Political Stupidity of the Jews Revisited, unquote, in which the author bemoaned the persistent tendency of Jews to vote democratic and in some cases to even question how well it's worth supporting Israel. But we'll go on to that. Now, back to the movement's core features. Neoconservatism is more of a worldview than a coherent political ideology. That worldview has been shaped by rather traumatic historic events, most notably the Nazi Holocaust, and the events of the 1930s that led up to it. Of course, the Great Depression and pervasive anti-Semitism at the time were important causes. But neoconservatives also stress three others, other causes, that is. First, the failure of liberal institutions in the Weimar Republic to prevent the rise of Nazism in Germany. Second, the appeasement of Hitler by the Western European democracies and their failure to confront him militarily early on. And third, the isolationism practiced by the United States during that fateful period. This assessment of these causes leads neoconservatives to believe that spineless liberals, military weakness, diplomatic appeasement, or almost any diplomacy, and American isolationism are ever-present threats that must be fought against at all costs. This is an integral part of their worldview, and you can often hear it in their rhetoric and polemics, You'll, talking about appeasement and Chamberlain and Munich and so on. For them, the importance of maintaining overwhelming military power, or what they call peace through strength, as well as constant American engagement or intervention outside its borders, cannot be overstated. The latter point is particularly critical because neocons believe that in the absence of a tangible threat to our national security, Americans naturally retreat into isolationism. As a result, they have engaged in a consistent pattern of threat inflation, or you can call it fear-mongering, over the past four years. From Team B's exaggeration of alleged Soviet preparations for nuclear war in the mid-1970s to the hyping of the various threats allegedly posed by Iraq, radical Islamists, and Iran after 9-11. Thus, Norman Podhoretz, one of the movement's patriarchs, has argued that just as we defeated Nazism in World War II and communism in what he refers to as World War III, so must we now defeat Islamofascism in what he's called World War IV. For neocons, a new Hitler is always just around the corner, and we must be in a permanent state of mobilization to confront him. But assuring American engagement and military dominance is not just a matter of protecting our national security. It is a moral imperative in their Manichaean world, neocons see the U.S. as the ultimate white hat, or as Elliot Abrams, who's Pod son in law and was also George W. Bush's top Middle East aide, once put it, the United States is the greatest force for good among the nations of the earth. This conviction helps explain Paul Wolfowitz's call for what amounted to a unilaterally enforced Pax Americana in his famous 1992 defense policy guidance, as well as Bob Kagan's and Bill Kristol's 1996 appeal to an increasingly anti-interventionist Republican Party to return to what they called a neo-Reaganite policy of, quote, benevolent global hegemony, unquote. That manifesto set the stage for the project of the new American century, whose associates did so much to coordinate the march to war in Iraq, both inside and outside the Bush administration after 9-11, and which created so much consternation in Beijing. So how does Israel fit into this? In my view, and that of other veteran observers like Jacob Heilbrunn, the first hundred pages of whose book I highly recommend if you want to understand the origin of, of um, neoconservatism, the, def- the defense of Israel has been a central pillar of the neoconservative worldview from the outset. Why? Of course, the fact that neoconservatism began as and remains a largely Jewish movement is one very relevant reason. But like the US, Israel is also seen as morally exceptional, due in major part to the fact that its birth as an independent state was made possible by the terrible legacy of the Holocaust and the guilt it provoked, particularly in the West. Moreover, its depiction in the media since 1967 as both a staunch U.S. ally which is questionable, but and a lonely outpost of democracy and Western civilization, besieged by hostile, if not barbaric, neighbors, has contributed to this notion of moral superiority. Of course, its most recent wars, its treatment of Palestinians, and the steadily rightward drift of its governments have made this image increasingly hard to sustain, not only in the West, but within the Jewish community here as well. Although strong defenders of Israel, however, neoconservatives are not necessarily Israel firsters. They believe that both the U.S. and Israel are morally exceptional. And that means that neither one should necessarily be bound by international norms or institutions like the U.N. Security Council that would constrain their ability to defend themselves or to preempt threats as they see fit. It means that both Countries should maintain overwhelming military power vis-à-vis any possible challengers. And in the neoconservative view, the interests and values of the two countries are largely congruent, if not identical. As Bill Bennett once put it somewhat mystically, America's fate and Israel's fate are one and the same. But that doesn't mean that neocons defer to whatever Israeli government is in power, as APAC, for example, tends to do. They often have different priorities. Though the American Enterprise Institute, the Project for the New American Century, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, to name a few neoconservative groups, neocons very much led the public campaign for invading Iraq From virtually the moment the Twin Towers collapsed. But I don't think Ariel Sharon, who considered Iran the much greater threat, was all that enthusiastic about the idea. Yeah,
1: he sure helped lie us into it, though. Just read The Spies Who Pushed for War by Julian Borger or Agents of Influence by Robert Dreyfus. A pretext for war by James Bamford. Anyway, uh, that's uh, Jim Loeb. Check out the live stream at israelsinfluence.org. Just during the commercial break, we'll be right back after this, y'all. Patrick Coburn and Ramsey Baroud today on the show.
0: Unlike APAC, neocons almost always believe they know better than anyone else. Now, this has changed. That is, the relationship with Israel and Israeli government has changed somewhat since Netanyahu took power in 2009 and especially since the 2013 elections, which resulted in the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Bibi has had a very close relationship with key neocons since the 1980s, when he was based here as an Israeli diplomat in the U.S., and neoconservatives had their, real fir- their first taste of power under Ronald Reagan. Their worldviews, that is, neocons and and Bibi's are very similar, but there have been differences. While most neocons have been calling for regime change in Syria through covert or direct US military action, Bibi has wanted the civil war there to go on and on, presumably for as long as possible. And while neocons, who have long viewed Moscow as a dangerous adversary, have urged a harder line against Russia over Crimea and Ukraine, Bibi has maintained a discreet silence and enjoys a businesslike, if not cordial, relationship with Vladimir Putin. So, Manichaeanism, moral exceptionalism, a benevolent Pax Americana backed up by huge military budgets, Israel's security, these are all central to the neoconservative worldview. Now, it's often said that neocons are also Wilsonians, devoted to the spread of democracy and liberal values. I think this is way overplayed, and I agree with Zbigniew Brzezinski, who has sometimes observed that when neoconservatives talk about democratization, they usually mean destabilization. (laughs) Now, I believe some neocons, notably Bob Kagan, are indeed, I believe, sincerely committed to democracy promotion and human rights. But I think his is a minority view, as demonstrated most recently in the case of Egypt, where, like Netanyahu, most influential neocons deeply appreciate President Sisi and want Washington to do more to help him. And like Bibi, most neocons think a de facto alliance between Israel and the region's Sunni autocrats, who have led the counter-revolution against the Arab Spring, would just be the cat's pajamas. Indeed, most neocons have historically always had a soft spot for what they used to refer to as friendly authoritarians. And when was the last time you heard neoconservatives advocate for full human rights for Palestinians? let alone their right to national self-determination, unless they want to exercise it in Jordan. In any event, their record over the past 40 years suggests that their devotion to democracy depends entirely on the circumstances. It just turned red, or it's about to. I'd like to make two final notes as briefly as I can. First, it's a movement with no recognized leader, although I think Bill Kristol would like to be one. Yes, they work together quite closely and coordinate their messaging to create very effective echo chambers. But they also have differences and of opinion over tactics and sometimes even over substance. Some neocons, like Frank Gaffney and Daniel Pipes, actively promote Islamophobia, while others, such as Kagan and Royal Gerecht, disdain it. There are soft neocons like David Brooks at the New York Times and hard neocons like Brett Stevens at the Wall Street Journal. In other words, the movement is not monolithic, except in the core elements I outlined previously. Second and last. All right, y'all. Have been
1: um, in Jim Loeb is just wrapping up his talk at the Israel's Influence Conference there one of the world's greatest experts on the neocons. Here, let's listen to the very end of his speech here.
0: Donald Rumsfeld, to derail Kissinger's efforts at detente with Moscow. Under Jimmy Carter, they wooed the Christian right, despite the clear anti-Semitism of some of its leaders. As Irving Kristol said at the time, it's their theology, but it's our Israel. And that those as coalition of the three helped propel Reagan to victory in 1980. Then alienated, as as Larry pointed out, by the first Bush's pressure on Israel to stop settlements and enter into serious uh, peace talks after the Gulf War, many neocons opted for Clinton. And by the mid 90s, they allied with liberal internationalists in pressing Clinton to intervene in the Balkans over Republican opposition. By 2000, however, they had reconstituted the old Reagan coalition uh, of aggressive nationalists and the Christian right. And after 9-11, they, of course, led the charge, along with Rumsfeld and Cheney, into Iraq. But now, less than a decade later, they've been with the liberal interventionists on Libya and Syria, And some of them, like Kagan and Max Boot, are openly warning that they'll back Hillary this year, especially if Trump gets the Republican nomination. But I'm going to leave that to Justin.
1: All right, so that was Jim Loeb's talk there. All right, is it Ramondo's next? Let's see. I think it's Justin next. This Thank is, you uh, very Israel's much. Israel'sinfluence.org. Now we have that fun opportunity to talk about. And uh, the, by the uh, way, stay tuned because uh, Ramsey Baroud is going to be on the show to talk Israel-Palestine, and Patrick Coburn is going to be here to talk about what's going on in the Syria war as well. Uh, I think he's introducing Justin, so I will. Editorial director of Antiwar.com. I just want to say, Ron Paul heroically stuck up for liberty this morning on CNN. If you had a chance to see that, and there's new WikiLeaks out that have um, some pretty good quotes. I guess I'll talk about this later, um, about uh, Israel and Syria. But here goes uh, Justin's talk at the Israel's Influence Conference.
0: Now, I realize that what most people remember about the recent Republican presidential debates...
1: Check my Twitter feed for the uh, live stream.
0: the name-calling,
1: the references to hand-length... But there have been. A- oh, no, he's going to sit here and defend Trump the whole time. Okay, I don't want to hear that. Anyway, um, cool, so we can talk about good news instead. Well, I don't know, let's see what he says.
0: Have been highlighted. Although these may have been lost amid all the brouhaha and the liberal moralizing. So on to our experiment. Which candidate said the following?
1: Quote Yeah, yeah, Trump says a lot of things. Anyway, well, what a waste of a speech. That's sad. But anyway, um, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of great speeches there today at the Israel's Influence Conference. Um, meanwhile, it's in the news today that Sheldon Adelson is perfectly happy with Trump. And why not? Because, uh, quote, I was always your friend, even in the toughest moments, and that's not going to change. I'm the biggest supporter of Israel of all, says Donald Trump. It's in the Jewish Daily Forward this morning. Anyway. Some people just got to want to try to believe, despite all evidence. Anyway, uh, yeah, Ron Paul was on today making fun of the Republicans because, of course, they have what's called the Ron Paul rule. you got to have a majority in at least eight states to have your name placed in denomination. Um, which has now made it so that uh, Ted Cruz can't get his name placed in denomination. They're going to have to try to change the rules, see if they can... Uh, Possibly, some of the Republicans want to uh, try to stop Trump by if they can stop him on the first ballot, change the rules for the second, bring in uh, Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney or somebody other than Trump. And Trump said, "Boy, if you do that, there might be a riot." Nice convention here you got here. Need some protection for it. Um. Uh, you know like prince bandar told uh, vladimir putin i can prevent terrorists from attacking your olympics <laughs> so yeah ron paul denounced that too threats of violence at an american political convention man what are you doing no dude you don't do that he didn't say trump by name but he was he condemned it pretty, pretty clearly that was what he was referencing and anyway um I don't know. I just like it when Ron Paul's on there. So he was making fun of them, uh, the Republican Party, for screwing themselves. And uh, he took the opportunity con- to condemn Donald Trump and the Republican Party and all the other possible nominees. the they, CNN people asked him, well, what about if they bring in uh, Mitt Romney or Paul Ryan? And Ron just laughed, like right in their face, kind of laugh. And uh, damned them all for us with a smile and said, of course, you know what we need is liberty. Not a bunch of leaders coming and save us with a bunch of new rules and regulations to make everything okay. What we need is the right to live our own lives and decide for ourselves. A free economy, free of bailouts and subsidies. And you know Ron Paul Shtick, peace, liberty. And then they said, okay, we're all out of time. Now that you don't want to talk about politics anymore. And that was his point. So you guys just want to talk about personalities. Let's talk about policies. And they said, we got to go to commercial. Anyway, the heroic Ron Paul. They let him be on TV. All right. And then, um, so yeah, let's see. I covered Adelson doesn't mind Trump at all. And why would he? Trump's big speech to APAC coming up here in, uh, Just a few days. Uh, But then I thought this was interesting. You know, WikiLeaks put out this thing uh, saying, hey, look, uh, State Department, or uh, not State Department documents, but um, Hillary Clinton emails, overthrow Assad for Israel. And David Kenner, uh, one of the editors of Foreign Policy Magazine, says, wah, this is plagiarized from a foreign policy article. This is fake. This isn't a document. This is a Twitter fight, but I'm the point isn't Twitter. The point is the point. So listen for a second. So Twitter answered back. Yes, it is too legit here. And they published the PDF. And the reason that Foreign Policy Magazine has the same thing as the State Department document is because the author of the Foreign Policy Magazine article emailed it to Hillary Clinton. The author was James P. Rubin. Does that sound familiar? Yes, he was Bill Clinton's. State Department spokesman during the aggressive war against Serbia in 1999 when I think in the middle of it he married Christian Amanpour who would interview him every day about how great the war was and how necessary it was and how successful it was even though it was supposed to last 3 days and it ended on carrying it ended up carrying on for 6 weeks or whatever uh completely failed in their objectives but anyway that same Jamie Rubin that's married to Christian Amanpour The foreign policy uh, uh, reporter or whatever, anchor for CNN, he wrote this thing. Oh man, I'm not very good at budgeting my time on this show, am I? Well, he wrote a thing all about how, yeah, we ought to overthrow Assad for Israel, and I'm going to tell you all about it on the other side of this break. Not like you didn't already know that. But, you know, more details, more footnotes. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'm Scott. Welcome back to the show. What the hell? Let me see here. If I can get this. Uh, yeah, I'm doing too many things at once here. Uh, yeah, It's there somewhere. Okay, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, Ramsey Baroud. <laughs> I just want to say Ramsey Youssef. Yeah, wouldn't that be an interview? Uh Ramsey Baroud, coming up on the show. Um, here in a minute. In a little while. Uh, and then Patrick Coburn. Talk all about, uh, Syria, Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, um, anyway, um, yeah, if you want, after the show, it's going to be going on all day long. So, uh, check out israel'sinfluence.org, uh, Grant Smith and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy and the Washington Report on Middle Eastern Affairs. We're Mia. We're Mia and Irmep. They're putting on a thing. And uh, I already saw great speeches by Larry Wilkerson and Jim Loeb. I missed the earlier ones. I spaced it out. And I was doing the Ernie show this morning as well. But um, uh, right now, Justin's talking about the greatness of Trump for whatever reason. I have no idea. But then I'm sure there's going to be good stuff there today as well. Um, uh, so check that out. Uh, Grant's thing. It's at, and if you're in DC, it's at the National Press Club. I went there, uh, two years ago, they had one, it was great. And then one year ago, they had one, I watched the live stream of it, and it was great too. I'll be watching it all day here. Israel'sInfluence.org, there's a live stream, YouTube, uh, stream going on. Check my Twitter feed, ScottHorton.org, no, Twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I have a link to the live stream there if you page down a little bit can find that. Okay, now, so here's the thing. Uh, Jamie Rubin uh, sent this thing to Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, This doesn't implicate Hillary specifically because it doesn't include her responses. But anyway, there's still lots of good stuff in here. And I'm not going to read the article that he sent. You can read the article that he sent her. Uh, more or less the whole text of it. I'm not sure what changes there are, but the the article that Jamie Rubin wrote that ran at Foreign Policy was called "The Real Reason to Intervene in Syria: Cutting Iran's Link to the Mediterranean Sea Is a Strategic Prize Worth the Risk." So that's what he wrote, and we'll get back to that in a second. But first of all. This is, again, this is Jamie Rubin, used to be State Department spokesman during the Bill Clinton years, now married to Christian Amanpour, and he's writing this article, uh, this email, well, he wrote the article, he's sending the article to Hillary Clinton with this email attached. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, um, uh, I wanted to pass on something I intend to publish on Syria and Iran because I think it's worth trying to urge the president and his political advisors to act. As you can see from today's column by Jackson Deal, that's at the Washington Post, the pundits and many in the media will push the Syria issue very hard for the foreseeable future. It may not be on the front burner every day, but it will be close to or at the top of the media's attention indefinitely. Interestingly, the Republicans have shown their hand on the foreign policy debate. Oh, I'm sorry, man. I screwed up. April 30th, 2012. It's the important point here to put this in context in your timeline and your brain. This is, you know, so it's election year. It's a few months before the DIA report, but we all know what was already going on by then. As far as uh, CIA intervention, Obama's intervention in Syria. Uh, This is a few months into it, but we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, So. The Republicans, they've shown their hand on the foreign policy debate, Jamie Rubin writes to Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, in which inaction on Syria is pretty much the only serious criticism they can offer that will stick. Can you imagine that? All right, anyway. As you will see from the attached piece, I believe that action on Syria will forestall the biggest danger on the horizon, that Israel launches a surprise attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. Although the pressure has now eased for a variety of reasons, it will return. Action by Washington on Syria, on the other hand, I believe will eliminate much of the urgency for Israeli action. In other words, a more aggressive policy on Syria will eliminate the best case the Republicans have going into the the November election will ease substantially the pressure on Israel to attack Iran and possibly spark a wider war in the Middle East. And finally, would be the right stance on Syria going forward. I know you may not agree, but I thought it was better to share this with you first, at least as a new way to look at the problem. All the best, your friend, Jamie P. Rubin. So there you go. Um, and so there you go. Now, he doesn't mention, oops, we gave Iraq to Iran and increased the size and power and influence of the Iranian so-called Shiite Crescent Alliance by 80% or something with the invasion of 2003 and the war for the Dawa Party and the Supreme Islamic Council and the Bada Brigade and associated murderers. But so, geez, why fight Assad? Why weaken Assad? Same thing as I always told you for five years straight here. To Well, the same thing they've admitted all along, since long before. So we've talked about this for ten years. Uh, long before this ever kicked in, we've talked about it, uh, you know, with the clean break on the Yan'an plan going way back. We've talked about the redirection by Seymour Hersh in 2007, which explains all of this as well. And then, of course, since the dawn of the Arab Spring, uh, since the very beginning, we've been covering the CIA's covert intervention in Syria on the show, and, and why, it's obvious, it's the consolation prize. After giving Iraq to Iran-backed and very close to Iran uh, factions, the consolation prize is, well, take Syria away from them then. And so, and that's what they've been trying to do. And of course, because Syria backs Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is a threat in the sense that they can deter Israeli aggression. Which, of course, is not what the word threat means at all, but as it's used in American and Israeli foreign policy when it comes to Hezbollah. It's not like they're an offensive army that could invade Israel. Um, but they can defend themselves from it. Well, to a certain degree. I mean, not if the Israelis threw every single thing they had at them. But uh, for various reasons, it's difficult to do that. But anyway, um, so that's their problem. And so, why attack Syria? Not because Assad is going to invade Israel. Not because Assad is going to arm up Hezbollah to be a force powerful enough to invade Israel. Not any of this. But as a bribe to try to get the Israelis to not launch a war against Iran that would, of course, necessarily draw the United States in. Right in the middle of when Obama and Hillary, at least supposedly, were working on the Iran deal. The nuclear deal, which would, of course, deprive the Israelis of their fake casus belli by taking a civilian safeguarded nuclear program and making it a civilian extra super safeguarded nuclear program, more safeguarded than ever before, Uh, which sort of takes the whole gulf out of your Tonkin if you're trying to start a war. And so... Um, but that's the deal. Why do this? Because that's what the Israelis want. And maybe, oh, and domestic politics. The Republicans are going to accuse, uh, you and the administration of not doing enough to overthrow Assad. That's the criticism, criticism they're afraid will stick. When, of course, Hillary, as you hear at the top of every show, herself had the perfect, uh, answer to that, even when she was guilty of the policy. Um, I play it for you all the time here. We know Al
0: Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting Al Qaeda in Syria?
1: And so, geez, isn't that kind of all she had to say? But no. That's what the Israelis want. And so that's why they're doing it. Anyway, so check that out, WikiLeaks today. And I'm going to go back and reread that uh, Jamie Rubin article. I kind of breezed through it this morning. It looks really interesting.
0: So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom the history and economics they
2: didn't teach you.
1: Hey, Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or com alright you All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. All right, well. A little bit of news about Yemen here. Uh, from Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. Saudis say they will soon scale back Yemen war. U.S. praises announcement. Saudis say airstrikes will continue. Saudi Arabia's military spokesman today, that's yesterday I guess, announced their intention to scale back military operations against Yemen at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah, great. They suggested this would happen soon, but that for now the strikes would continue. The announcement comes as U.N. officials took the Saudi military to task for a series of airstrikes Tuesday against a Yemeni marketplace, killing at least 119 civilians. This was the latest in number of embarrassing incidents of major civilian deaths in Saudi attacks. The U.S. praised the announcement, saying they'd been concerned about the loss of innocent life in Yemen, and welcome the Saudi statement for vowing to bring stability to the country they attacked last year. The U.S., of course, has participated in the Saudi war, both refueling Saudi warplanes during airstrikes and participating in the naval blockade, as well as helping them pick targets, etc., etc., etc. And according to, uh, is it Ben Simpson or was it? Dan S- oh, Dan Simpson, former Ambassador Dan Simpson on the show two weeks ago, Said, uh, at least that he hears, I guess this would be unconfirmed, but sounds believable to me. They even have American co pilots flying in the back seats of these Saudi jets. So little princelings condo, holding their hands, you know, as they go and do these bombing runs. Unbelievable, man. Um, Saudi's, uh, war's stated goal was to reinstall Yemen's President Hadi, which, uh, of course, they admit can't happen. Remember again, the, um, the, uh, the New York Times says here that the president's advisors warned they knew all along that the Saudi led offensive would be, quote, long, bloody, and indecisive. Obama said, go ahead and do it anyway. That was a year ago. Nobody cares at all. It's not a political issue in America at all, the war against Yemen. except Now there's one exception. A senator has come out, a senator from Connecticut, uh, complaining about it, Chris Murphy. And in fact, uh, you know, I had a a friend email me this morning and say, listen to this, running time, uh, it's five minutes too long. Anyway, if I could have queued up the best soundbite for you, I might have. But anyway, at PRI, you can read about Dan Murphy is now complaining about it, but certainly not a uh, subject in the presidential election. And by the way, i got to say this because I haven't had a chance to say this or enough or something, um, and that is the shame that belongs to Bernie Sanders for refusing to fight about foreign policy oh, well, there's the difference between me and Senator Clinton. I'm a little bit less for a little bit of regime change sometimes. He could be absolutely nuking her out of the water on Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Mali, Syria. He could be nuking the policy out of the water here. As recently as 2011, the caliphate was Osama's attic. Now it's a land the size of Great Britain, and that's Hillary Clinton's effing fault. And Bernie Sanders, even for his own political gain, to save his own life, to become the president of the United States, he will not do it. He will pull that punch because, geez, what if he weakens her? and opens up a line of attack for Trump, but then he loses to her anyway. And of course, he's not much better, right? He's come out for overthrowing Assad before. He supported the UN resolution, or the the, uh, Senate resolution, calling on the UN to pass a resolution to go after Gaddafi and Libya. So, but she is Dick Cheney, okay? She's probably worse than Liz Cheney. I mean, Liz Cheney has hardly killed anybody. She did work for the State Department for a short time in the Bush junior years. But Hillary Clinton has killed so many people. And she is just, there's no way that, even if she says, oh yeah, well you were for it too, still. He can just say you were worse. You were the one. Obama was 51-49 and it was 51 because of you, lady. And you probably threatened him too. You probably blackmailed him into doing it. And so can you imagine you have the chance, you're running for president of the United States against a very weak candidate. Hillary Clinton has so many skeletons in her closet. Public and, you know, private corruption and everything else. You know, they ask him about the FBI investigation, ask her whether she's going to be indicted. If you're indicted, will you continue to run in the debate? And she goes, oh, please, that ain't going to happen. And they go, Senator Sanders, what do you have to say about that? And he goes, there's a process. Anyway, I'm going to fight for the middle class. There's a process? You know, he could at least say, look, the FBI is investigating And they'll let us know what they find. Right? Like something. Score a half a political point, even if you're going to be nice about it. But he doesn't even say the FBI. He just goes, well, there's a process. Anyway, let's talk about the middle class. What? He refuses to attack her and when she's horrible on everything. And when the bottom line of the emails, as you and I both know, it's something that Trump is obviously going to say the thing that everyone is thinking that no one else will say, the reason she put the emails on the private server in the first place is so that she could obstruct justice, so that she could destroy secrets, so that she could hide her guilt for all the nefarious things she did. She claims she sent 30,000 emails to Bill Clinton. He admits he's only sent two in his life. She's lying. She's covering up. She sent her people to delete the emails that implicate her in criminal activity, or at least, you know, maybe in terms of policy activity, you know, directly benefiting our enemies. Right. We have the email that says, look, boss, Al Qaeda is on our side in this one in Syria. But maybe they deleted the one that says, boss, we really are backing Al Qaeda in Syria now. I mean, man, are you sure this is right still? And anyway, Bernie Sanders sucks, man. We could be having a huge fight. And look, look at how did Obama beat her eight years ago? Eight years ago, Obama said she was bad on Iraq and I'm good. And you know what? I just don't even want to get into that many wars the way she would. That was what he had over her, was that he was the more peaceful guy. And Sanders has just pulled that punch and pulled that punch, refuses to attack Hillary Clinton. Now it's way too late. Which I think just is further evidence for the theory. Not that it's necessarily original to me. I think a lot of people thought of it at the same time. That his job is just keeping the dissatisfied left in the Democratic Party through the season until it's time to endorse Hillary and push all of them to her. Gotta stop Trump after all, et cetera. Et cetera. Except I don't think she stands a chance. I'll say that a million times. I mean, I mean, and Trump has a lot of weaknesses because he's a real son of a bitch. He's horrible on so many things. But I think he's way better at politics than she is. I mean, she is just a disaster area, man. She is like, um, like Peter Van Buren said. She's like Pigpen from Charlie Brown. She's just constantly criminal investigations and scandals and lies and betrayals and rumors and emails with things like, yeah, we're backing people who admit that they massacre innocent people just for being black. That's in the emails to her. This is who we're backing. Any excuses? We talked about with uh, Jeffrey Bachman on the show uh, yesterday. Any idea that this was a humanitarian mission is expired by now, wrote her best friend Sidney Blumenthal to her in the middle of the war. Man. Anyway. Oh, and I'm sorry, man. Damn, see, now I'm out of time. I went way over time on that. Um, uh, Someone emailed me this morning asking about my view on the Iran deal, and I would say I'm like 90% for it. My only hesitation is it shouldn't be necessary at all. It holds Iran to a much higher standard than anybody else, but they agreed to it. And mostly what it did is it took the big fake excuse of the Iran nuclear program off the table, at least for now, as a... you know, pseudo causes belly. As we see in this email, people with power and influence were quite afraid that the Israelis would exploit. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. Again, uh, let me plug my friend Grant's conference one more time here. It's at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. If you're close by, it's going on all day today. Israel's influence, good or bad from, for America. You'd think I could say that, right? Israel's influence, good or bad for America. And uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can find the link to the live stream there. You know, for after the show is over today, then you can tune in uh, and watch the conference. Good stuff already uh, taking place there today. All right. Now, uh, our first guest on the show today is Ramsey Baroud, editor of Palestine Chronicle, and we run his articles regularly at antiwar.com as well. Welcome back to the show, Ramsey. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me
1: uh very happy to have you back on the show here and uh a very important article i think you've written here why bds cannot lose and i wonder if you mean must not lose or really it cannot lose and maybe both uh what is bds and what's so important here
2: well first it it uh, it's it, both indeed it can't and it must not uh bds is the uh boycott sanctions and divestment movement which is the palestinian equivalent of the south african boycott movement that started sometimes in the 50s and 60s and took off in the 80s and until nelson mandela was released from prison and apartheid uh, in south africa was crushed uh, for the sake of clarification it's important to, to note that equality is yet to be fully achieved in south africa it's going to be a long journey for them but the political system uh that has Institutionalized apartheid has indeed ended, and there is a platform and opportunity for South Africa to put itself back together after hundreds of years of colonialism and about 50 years or so of apartheid. The Palestinians are being for something similar to that model. Uh, What they are experiencing under the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and within Israel itself is indeed a system of apartheid, as described by former President Jimmy Carter and by many South African luminaries, including Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela himself, uh, before he passed away. Uh, that's what uh, the Palestinians are working towards, and that's what the BDS movement uh, is all about. That's the reason of why it can't lose because it's perhaps the only globally unifying platform that brought Palestinians and their supporters including many many Jewish activists uh and progressive uh organizations all around the world to make this happen uh it can't lose because it's non-violent uh uh, uh you know uh, uh, civil society centered uh platform that aims to end the injustice that is taking place in Palestine today
1: All right now Um, I was just mentioning Grant F. Smith and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy and the conference that they're putting on today in Washington, D.C. about Israel's influence. Well, Grant, uh, he broke the story on the show the other day, so I think it's okay. He's going to talk about it in his talk later today uh, on that live stream uh, at the National Press Club. Uh, But he did talk about this on the show the other day. He did some Google consumer surveys it's not exactly the same as a telephone survey, but they do try to make it random. It's not purely self-selected Internet like, you know, uh, a poll on the website of everybody's favorite MSNBC host or Fox host or something like that. It is, you know, a ba- basically randomly selected focus groups are asked these questions and this kind of thing. And anyway, um, the point is they did the test in Mexico, in Canada, in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And only in the United States do more people believe that the Palestinians occupy Israel uh, or Israeli land uh, rather than the other way around. In every other country, and the, the numbers are still disappointing all the way around. But in America, it's 39.8% understand that Israelis occupy Palestinian land compared to 49.2%. That Palestinians occupy Israeli land. I think that's why you get so much confusion and dissonance on this issue is because Americans really have never been exposed to truth that would contradict their basic understanding that the Palestinians are forever threatening the Israelis with terrorism if they won't give up some of their land. Some of the Israelis land to them. And and people think, well, that's like trying to appease the Nazis, giving them a little land. They're just going to want some more or something. They just have the entire story turned completely around, Ramsey. They don't understand.
2: This is this is incredible, Scott. And it's the the tragedy of our time that we have been dealing with. I mean, I have been doing this uh, writing on in, in the Middle East and, and living in the United States for about 20 years. And I can tell you numerous Dutch stories that make absolutely... No sense. We have more uh, news networks uh, in this country than anyone else. I would say than more than the rest of the world combined. We are streaming news about Palestine, Israel, around the clock every channel. Yet the more we do, the less people understand. This is not just in you know regarding the case of Palestine, Israel, but even there were there was a study that was conducted before and after the Gulf War in the early nineties. And they discovered that more Americans knew less about the Middle East because of the coverage than they actually knew before the coverage. (laughs) Um, There is something very, very sad and tragic and surreal about all of this. And that's what makes dialogue extremely difficult. It's like someone is out there trying to sideline the American people, trying to make them not just a a very irrelevant player in, 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 in all of this, but rather to fool them, to hoodwink them into actually siding with the the wrong party. We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to inspire people to hate. We're not trying to tell people, you know, side with me. It's it's not a a football match. It's not a sports event. It's a very basic issue of human rights and justice. You have a group of people who have been occupied for the last 68 years. Progressive occupation that has control the lives of millions of Palestinians. The vast majority of our people are refugees living all over the world, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, all over the place, and in numerous refugee camps within the region and within Palestine itself. We want to end this. We want to live as equals in our own homeland and share the land. We are not asking for any ethnic cleansing. We're not asking for genocide. We don't want another Holocaust. All of this nonsense. Comparing us to the Nazis and our leaders to Hitler and all of this is just playing on this emotional card that has been promoted by the American media for so many years. And it needs to stop. Um, you know, we have no army. We have no air force. We have no navy. We're a group of people who are struggling in various means, uh, um, you know, in Gaza, in the West Bank and elsewhere. And we need to bring this tragedy tragedy to an end. And this is why it's essential for the American people to understand. This is not a a matter of choice. Americans are being hoodwinked for a very specific reason. Their money are being used uh, in order for them to supply the Israeli army with weapons, in order for them to sustain the illegal settlements project on Palestinian lands in the West Bank and in, in Jerusalem, in order for them to ensure that the Israeli army and government's policies are being sustained. If they understand the reality, they will not stand up for this. They will not support this anymore. This is why ignorance is not a choice at this point, because there's a human life at stake.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And now I want to point out, too, as long as we're talking about polls, there was one, I believe it was a Gallup poll, that they talked about at Mondo Weiss blog a couple of weeks ago, where super majorities of U.S. Jewish students agree with your position entirely, which just goes to show they are interested in simple human rights, simple fairness, and they are interested enough in the subject to know a little bit about it. So they know who's occupying who in the West Bank, and they won't stand for it. And they won't let Israel claim that it
2: represents them because it doesn't. That makes perfect sense. This trend of younger Jewish uh, students and, and Jewish actors has been going on for a for a while now, and I credit that to the rise of social media and the Internet. The whole idea that I can fabricate an, a narrative, a fictional narrative, and push it and sustain it and promote it throughout the years and get away with it is no longer applicable at this point. Yeah, that's because, right.
1: Those days yeah. are over. All right. Now, yeah. I'm sorry. Let me let me stop you right there. We'll be right back on the other side of this break. More from Ramsey Youssef from PalestineChronicle.com, dot com. And you can, of course, follow him uh and read his articles at antiwar.com as well the latest is why bds cannot lose hey i'll scott horton here it's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation and if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet since 1977 robertson roberts brokerage inc has been helping people buy and sell gold silver platinum and palladium and they do it well they're fast reliable and trusted for more than 35 years and they take bitcoin Call Robertson-Robertson, Roberts 1-800-874-9760, or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all, welcome back. Oh, my God. Ramsey, did I just call you Ramsey Youssef? I'm so sorry, dude. I'm the worst. I swear to God, I'm the worst person in the whole world. You know, Ramsey Youssef was the only Ramsey I knew for so long, except for... Who's the old attorney general? Anyway, I yeah, but, but hold on. For I just got second. this groove in my brain where Ramsey but, is just connected what? to but, the wrong last name there, man. I, don't culpa. blame
2: yourself. Listen, I got stopped at an airport once over Ramsey. Don't, okay. don't worry about it. That.
1: Oh, man. I don't know what is wrong with my brain. Seriously, that's unforgivable. <laughs> Thank you. You're, you're very gracious, and I'm very sorry. Um, all right, listen. So, now, wait a minute. There's good news here, sort of, kind of, which is that this whole BDS thing, uh, I don't know. How is BDS doing compared to what you expected when you first heard of it?
2: Well, when we first started BDS, um, we were really quite uh, unclear on, on how do we want this movement um, to, to, you know, what kind of direction, what kind of structure I was of the opinion at the time, that was early 2000s, mid 2000 I was of the opinion that the call has to come from Palestinians themselves, partly because I was on tour in South Africa, and I met with some former colleagues of, of Nelson Mandela and other members of the ANC, the African National Congress, who told me that you can't have this elitist movement that comes from universities across Europe and, and the United States and call it a a grassroots Palestinian movement. It doesn't work that way. So basically, the call indeed came in 2005, when hundreds of Palestinian civil society organizations issued a statement after following a conference calling for boycott. And we used that as the first step to garner international support. With time, it, it morphed into this kind of decentralized movement, kind of loose networks all over the world. Um, that that does not speak on behalf of an organization. We don't have a central command, if you will. We don't have just a group of individuals who are controlling the thoughts and the ideas. Uh, if you know, when I went to Barcelona last month, for example, the, the BDS activists there, yes, they are part of the spirit of the movement, but they are focusing on local issues. They are t- targeting lo- local players. Everybody is playing the game based in, in, on his own local uh, 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 factors and needs and priorities, and this is why it's succeeding. Because in the old days, whenever you had a movement like this, it would be targeted. Sometimes Israel—I mean, many of our leaders were killed in Cyprus and Greece and, and whatever in the '70s. You know, but you know, you can't criminalize a civil rights movement. You can't criminalize thousands of of organizations around the world. There's nobody to target. This is why it's an extremely difficult uh, problem for Israel, because there is really, no matter what you do, you can't possibly silence uh, such a growing number of people speaking so many different languages all over the world. To give you an example, um, I'm going on a a speaking tour in New Zealand and Australia to speak about BDS next, uh, next week. Going with me is my partner Ali Abunama. Ali was denied visa to Australia and then universities started pulling the invitation for him to come and speak. Um, But all that it took is for us to start petitions on change.org and other platforms and thousands of people came to his support and every single decision has been reversed. So this is kind of really the power of the masses, if you will. And it's working really well for us. And I really don't See any any reversal in the successes of BDS at this point? Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Now there was uh, just news last week, I guess, of a pretty major international security company uh, that withdrew from uh, the their, I guess, deals with the West Bank or Israel entirely. Could, can you elaborate on that one for us? Yeah.
2: Um, indeed, from from uh, from the West Bank and Israel, because uh, this is G, G for us. It's the largest. And Israel
1: entirely, not just in the West Bank.
2: That's right, because their performance, I mean, what they are doing in Israeli prisons, they are providing the kind of, you know, so-called security that is targeting Palestinian prisoners. Because thousands of the Palestinians, you have about 9,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israel right now. Um, Out of them, about 800 held without charges, without due process. And hundreds of them are women and children. And G4S has been the, the main uh, uh, provider of the security apparatus that that keeps these guys in prison and and humiliates them and mistreats them. But this is not just about prisoners; it's also about the hundreds of checkpoints that are uh, er- that have been erected by the Israeli occupation and the Israeli military. Throughout the West Bank and East Jerusalem as well, so uh, G4S has kind of really is part and parcel of Israel's military and security system. So targeting it in a specific region would have made no sense because they could have provided that sort of 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 services to the Israeli military in other parts of, of Israel. So as a result. We have targeted the movement and, and, I mean, the company and all of its services. And I would say this is perhaps our greatest achievement in years, because this is a company that is uh, that is worth billions of dollars, and they have insisted that there can be absolutely no effort that will dissuade them uh, uh, to, to divest from Israel, that this is a done deal, don't even worry about Israel. But we kept at them, uh, again... Small, you know, groups throughout the world, picketing, fighting with them, uh, blocking their movement, making their life extremely difficult. And as a result, companies were divesting from G4S. Uh, Countries were telling, like for example, the uh, the the, uh, the UNESCO in Jordan just recently told G4S, we don't want to work with you anymore because of what. You, so they are starting to lose money. This is not mm-hmm. about Ramzi baroud divesting i have no stocks in g4s it's about companies and 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 other countries saying listen i don't want to be part of this i don't want to be part of this conflict i don't want my money invested with you even the bill gates foundation divested from them
1: so there you you go then these kind of successes really build on each other but now so what about all the other Ramsey barouds all the people who don't necessarily have power and influence but they want to participate in this what do they do (laughs)
2: Well that's the beauty of it, because BDS has kind of a place for everyone to get involved. Now I tell people this is not about not buying Israeli Hummus or not buying Israeli dates. Yes, that will have its impact as well. But this is about the conscience. I mean the fact that you are conscious of your choices. The fact that you are making a moral choice in what you eat and what you buy and what you do, it makes you it enlists you as as a member of the movement in a way. And it makes you, you explain to your friends why you are not buying Israel hummus. You are telling your family why you are not buying this particular Israel product, why you are not going to Israel for tourism, and so forth and so on. That part of the consciousness, the collective consciousness, I would say, is allowing us to force the debate as part of the mainstream thinking. At one point when we started, Scott, We were not involved in this part. You know, we were not being discussed. There was no dialogue over BDS. Now, even Hillary Clinton is talking about it. She wrote a letter to Hayim Sabah, the powerful Zionist here in this country, Mm -hmm. telling him that BDS is going to be on top of my priority once I become a president. Thank you very much, Hillary. Let's make this part of the debate at this point, because this is exactly what we wanted from day one.
1: Right. Yeah, and again, back to just that basic misinformation about who's picking the fight with who over there and who is occupying who, that's how to generate this discussion. I mean, how do you get, as you continue to describe it, virtually the entire, at least bottom-up international community, not the not the leaders of the states, of course, but... Uh, so-called civil society all across the world are unanimous about this it's not because they're all a bunch of anti-semites it's because hey there's an occupied population going on in the west bank that they don't get mentioned too much here and maybe that fact is interesting in itself too maybe there's something that people need to look at and and you know the Especially when you talk about Bill Gates Foundation this and G4S that and these, you know, big and powerful, uh, interests beginning to feel the heat and, and providing an example to others that, man, you might want to go ahead and look out for your own interests at this point too. Um, it's a great way to start changing the narrative to get a little bit more reality involved in the discussion here in the U.S. And then, you know, I don't really know for sure, honestly, Ramsey, But I believe that if the American people, you know, if Wolf Blitzer ever had to show them a map and go, OK, here's 48 borders and here's 67 borders and here's the occupation now and here's this, that, and the other thing. And just explain the basic, uh, you know, just the simple bird's eye view of the situation to the American people. I think you would see opinions change overnight by tens of percentage points as to, uh, you know, Americans views towards supporting the Israelis the way we do.
2: Absolutely, I agree with you, Scott, and, but there is an important reminder here that the boycott movement against the apartheid regime in South Africa started um, outside South Africa itself in Britain in the 70s, and it really did not take off until the mid-80s. The Americans were the last to enlist. Ronald Reagan used to refer to Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. Not until 2008, that's like 16, 17 years after Mandela was released, was his name removed from the terrorist watch list that was confirmed by the Congress. I mean, believe it or not, he was not disqualified from that list until like three or four years before he actually passed away. Right. Um, oh, man, I'm, when- I'm
1: sorry, Ramsey. I'm sorry, I just realized how far over time I am. i got to go and get Patrick Coburn on the phone here. Um, but no
2: no worries at all. Thank you so Thanks much for having- again for
1: coming back on the show. I really do appreciate this. Thank you, Scott. All right, All right, y'all. You take care. That is the great Ramsey Baroud. You can find him. I'm so sorry about that, too. Jeez, I'm such a heel. It's unreal. Um, Why BDS Cannot Lose. It's at antiwar.com right now. He's at uh, Palestine Chronicles. Well, we'll be right back with Patrick in just saying. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for wallstreetwindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at wallstreetwindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. Wallstreetwindow.com right, y'all, well, looks like maybe I screwed up the time zones here with Patrick Coburn and the daylight savings, this and that. I tried to Skype him and he hung right up, so I think he must be otherwise occupied. Oh hell! And then that really sucks because Ramsey was still going. I had to cut off Ramsey to try to get Patrick, and then, and then now no Ramsey or Patrick. Yeah, you know that's interesting. I'm only realizing on Skype it says what time it is where he is. Five thirty, not six thirty. But don't they spring forward and fall back like us over in uh, merry old England? In the United Kingdom? All right. Well, I typed a little oops to him. I'll see if he uh writes back and becomes available. Isn't that just too bad? I feel really bad, uh, you know, interrupting Ramsey Baroud, too, when he was talking. Jesus, I didn't call him Yusef again, did I? What the hell's the matter with me? All right, well, we'll see about maybe getting Patrick later, or another day. You know what? Maybe he'll be able to do it in 15 minutes or something, right? That's a possibility. All right. um, Hey, this is important. America's sock puppet military dictator of Egypt, quote-unquote President Fatah al-Sisi, has warned Western powers that Libya could spiral out of control if they intervene militarily, again, he means, in the conflict-wrapped North African state, which, in fact, um, uh, they're already reinvaded with special forces and some airstrikes. Speaking in a rare interview, the uh, dictator said the West and its allies should instead concentrate on strengthening the army of Libya's internationally recognized government and let it do the job of stabilizing the country. That army is commanded by Khalif Haftar, an officially retired general who spent 20 years in exile in the U.S. and has been described as a potential Libyan Sisi. Yeah, in other words, oops, we fought against Gaddafi... For Al-Qaeda, so now we need to fight for the next Qaddafi against Al-Qaeda. They say he's a potential Libyan sisi because they don't want to say instead the next Qaddafi to try to undo their mistake from last time and put in a secular dictator instead of Islamist suicide bomber lunatics if we provide arms and support to the national libyan army it can do be- the job better than anyone else better than any outside intervention said al sisi which if i'm if i remember my game plan uh lineup on the scrimmage thing where they were doing here that would be saudi and egypt and was it turkey on the side of haftar and the cia whereas the um the United Arab Emirates, and I forgot who else was more on the side of these uh, law mistake guys. I don't know. Who's good on this stuff? The last really good article I read about who is who in the um, in the uh, various Libyan sides was two years ago now, I think, right? Bell True in the Sunday Times. or Oh, she had that thing in Foreign Policy that... Um, Remember, it was, we're going to invade Tripoli in a month or something like that was the stupid headline. But the article was great, all about who's backing which sides, all the different international players intervening there. And anyway, so CC is saying, um, let the locals handle it. Arm up the locals, but let them handle it. Otherwise, he says, history has spoken clearly about the difficulty of trying to impose peace from outside. Two lessons must be kept in mind, Sisi said. That of Afghanistan and that of Somalia. Those were long foreign interventions that started more than 30 years ago. And what progress has been made since? The results are there for everyone to see. Yeah, he only needed the Saudis to help him overthrow the Muslim Brotherhood that got elected after the last dictator was overthrown by popular revolution there. And then, uh, he invokes pretty easily. Look at who we're up against. Ansar al-Islam, al-Shabaab, Boko Haram. Uh, you know, that reminds me of Hosni Mubarak, uh, CC's predecessor, uh, once removed, who warned George W. Bush not to invade Iraq. He said, you will create 10,000 Bin Ladens. Yep. Anyway, uh, vote Democrat because Hillary Clinton has promised that all we got to do in Libya is invade and occupy the place forever. And she invoked in her own words, Germany, Korea, Japan. Could have said Italy, could have said a lot of places, right? Go and stay. Now, uh, our current dear leader, who went for it on uh, you know, her urging to do the war, at least now claims as his excuse it's everybody's fault but his. Barack Obama does. It's all the Brits' fault and the French's fault for not invading and occupying the place and building up a new government. He thought that they were going to. Were you guys going to do that? Because we were going to do. I thought you, you were going to. But then he says, "For America to commit to governing the entire Middle East and North Africa indefinitely is just wrongheaded, man. It's a fool's errand. At some point, we got to stop." Now, of course, that would be great if he would ever leave well enough alone. But while he, you know, cries about it all along. Uh this President has been more than happy to intervene on the side of the jihadists, especially in Libya and Syria. so then he wants to cry about, "Geez, you know there's spread al Qaeda guys all throughout the region, but uh don't want to do anything about it, which is fine. I mean I'm not saying he should do anything about it, but I'm saying all he had to do was not back al Qaeda. In Libya and Syria, and Gaddafi and Assad would have killed them good, and those wars would have been over back in 2011 or maybe 12 in the case of Syria, and secularism would have reigned. And after all, Saif Gaddafi was willing to bend over backwards to do whatever they wanted. That was the other thing I was reading about in the WikiLeaks, man, was um, from the emails. WikiLeaks put it out, I don't, you know, but it's available from the State Department was not just, and I'd forgotten this part of the story, but I think I knew it before, maybe it was in the Washington Times series, that not only was Saif Gaddafi trying to negotiate, first of all, to avoid the war, and then secondly, uh, to shorten the length of the war, but that they knew that his history was that previously he had tried to implement all these democratic reforms in Libya and had been thwarted by his father and the older allies. But that, um, you know, this was really a legitimate thing that he wanted to do for what he thought was, you know, probably his own best political interests, but also the interests of the Libyan state. And then once a few of those elders started defecting from Qaddafi once the war started and the bombing, uh, you know, was coming, then um, he had, you know, this much more of an opportunity to bring it back up again and without his father uh, quashing it and so the plan was to kick Momar upstairs and for safe Gaddafi to come in and try to set up you know some kind of quote unquote little R republic and hold elections and in other words, it wasn't just bluster, he'd tried to do this before and had been stopped by his own father, and now this became his second opportunity to do it. In a sense, they had given him the opportunity to do it, but nope, surrender was not good enough. And they refused to accept that and continued on with the war anyway, and in fact dismiss it as, oh well, he thinks he's dealing from a position of strength now, so we can't let him do that. And you know, when he thinks he has the upper hand to propose this.
2: I love Bitcoin, but there's
1: just something incredibly satisfying about having real fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity discs are so neat. They're one ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate a hundred bucks to the Scott Horton show, he'll send you one. Learn more at facebook.com slash commoditydiscs, com commodity alright you All right, y'all. Well, I hadn't heard back from Patrick, and I ain't going to bother him now, so I think I better just uh, wait. You know what? Maybe after the show, I'll just call him in half an hour and record him for half an hour and use that for the KPFK show on Sunday morning. What do you think? That is sounding like it's probably the right thing to do, considering that he did schedule the time. Go ahead and... Use it. Alright. So, uh, yeah, you'll have to listen to the show on Sunday morning then. Uh, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Pacifica Radio. Alright. Now I want to mention real quick here, I don't have too, too much to say about this, although that's the kiss of death around here, isn't it? Uh, but Robert Perry has a piece we're running on com today, and it's about MH17. Of course, the war party says that the Russian-backed Eastern Ukrainian militias shot it down, and others say, "Hey, not so fast." And Robert Perry says he has a source that says that you that the U.S. intelligence, CIA, believe that the only buck in the region that was operational at the time, but or buk or buck, whatever rocket system, belonged to the Ukrainian military. Uh, Albeit perhaps a rogue division of it under the control of one of the local oligarchs, one of the local warlords. And um, so, uh, yeah, there's that. But here's the thing of it. And this is the bottom line of Robert Perry's article. John Kerry claimed on Meet the Press, we've got the satellite footage of the area before the launch, during the launch, after the launch. There's no mystery as to where this missile came from at all. We know exactly where it came from. Well, the Dutch investigation says, well, we think it could be anywhere between here, here, and here, and there, and this huge land area, which could include, possibly at least, arguably, either side. If you try to make that case... So then the real dog that didn't bark is, how come the Dutch investigation did not demand the satellite pictures that John Kerry claims to possess? Unless he told them to cover it up and just forget it, or he was lying in the first place. Except I think the first one is much more plausible because there was a freaking war going on. So of course they had stationary satellites, well it's a safe assumption, don't you think? Maybe it's even a proven documented fact somewhere, I don't know. But wouldn't you assume they would have a stationary satellite parked over eastern Ukraine in the middle of all of this? And John Kerry said it existed and described it and claimed it, you know, sort of like Merrick Garland. He claims the Oklahoma City bombing as his credit, his hands-on role. Well, I call it blame. If he's willing to claim all that credit, then I say he bears responsibility for the massive cover-up there. Same kind of thing here. You want to claim this satellite footage as credit? Well, let's see what it really shows then. And so Robert Perry, you know what? I don't think he's a liar. He has one source, but he says he has one source. He doesn't pretend he has two sources. He says, I have one source... But my one source, I trust him, and my source tells me that the CIA briefed him, and this is what they think. And for the record, for what it's worth, Ray McGovern knows who Robert Perry's source is and says it's a good source. Though that is still a single source. That's not a second source. That's just our friend Ray vouching for that first source. So whatever. And two sources isn't bulletproof either, is it? It's just better. But I think Robert Perry's a straight shooter when it comes to these kind of issues. Um, and uh, so it's at least worth taking into account that um, that's what he says, his sources say, CIA says about what happened there. But what what is a proven fact, what is beyond dispute is that Kerry claimed he's got this footage and that he's so far completely and totally refused to cough it up, including to an American, the father of a American citizen and American citizen who was killed on that plane. So what the hell's going on there? See, I did go on and on about it when I was going to try to keep it short. All right, here's the other thing I want to talk about. Muqtada al-Sadr has been protesting like crazy. Uh, And when I say Sadr, I mean with 200,000 people in tow. He's been protesting against the so-called central government of Iraq, that is the government of Shi'istan there in Baghdad. Now, this is very simple. I'll keep it very simple. When America invaded... America took the side of what became the United Iraqi Alliance. It should be the United Shia Alliance, okay? And that meant the Supreme Islamic Council of the Hakim Clan, the Dawa Party of, I guess, various different families and powers and whatever, but, you know, Iranian-backed sock puppets, and Sadr. Now, of the three major Shiite factions that I just named... Sadr was the one who was living in Iraq. Badr and Dawah had been, uh, well, scary. Badr is just the army of the Supreme Islamic Council. Sorry. Anyway, same difference. They had all been living in Iran ever since Jimmy Carter hired Saddam to invade Iran back in 1979. Or at least gave him the green light to do it. And... uh And so they were the Iraqi traitors who fought on Iran's side during the Iran-Iraq war when America was on both sides, but especially Saddam's side and uh, the Iraqi side there in the war. And then uh, when America intervened and did the invasion of 2003 and overthrew Saddam and all the Sunnis and put the Shia in power, Sadr was the one who was the Iraqi nationalist, the Arab nationalist, who wanted to hold Iraq together in an alliance with the Sunnis and the Kurds and limit and kick out the Americans and the Iranians. So in response, America sided with the most Iranian-backed factions, the Skiri, Badr, Slash, Dawah forces, against Sadr while accusing Sadr of being the most Iranian-backed one. Okay, I didn't keep that simple, but that's what happened. It was a complicated mess, kind of. So now what we have here is the shia government, that is all the land from Baghdad down to Kuwait. That government, it's one major spoke in its wheel. Muqtada al-Sadr and those loyal to him and his Mahdi army and, and all their supporters and everything else, uh, they can withdraw their support from this central government. And right when it's in the middle of a war against the so-called Islamic State in what used to be western Iraq, Fallujah, Mosul, Ramadi, etc. Ramadi ain't all the way taken, just mostly. But anyway, and so here's their problem. Oil revenues have plummeted. And this is absolutely killing Iraqi Shia-Stan as well as Iraqi Kurdistan, and I guess the whole region must be hurting the Islamic State as well. They already have to sell their oil at a discount because it's, you know, black market oil. they got to sell the turkey uh, where they could get it from the Iraqi Kurds, um, you know, at the regular price. And they're taking a risk buying it from the Islamic State. So they got to get a, a bargain price for it. But anyway... um, So, uh, yeah, this is the problem is there's really no economy in Iraq to speak of other than oil revenues. And I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I believe Patrick Coburn said that their entire national government budget for all their civil service employees, so called, and their army and everything is $40 billion a year. And their oil revenues have just plummeted to 20. And so they're completely screwed. And I don't know whether Muqtada al understands economics or not, but basically he's saying, hey, my people want to get paid. And, hey, your problem is is that you guys are all such partisans and uh, such sectarians that you refuse to work together to solve these problems. Yeah, well, not going to solve the problem of the massive drop in the price of the global uh, you know, market in oil. So this is something that's going to be a huge struggle. And there have been huge protests time and again now lately and just in the past few weeks. And I think there's another today going on right now where they're marching on the green zone and demanding reform, reform, reform. But it's sort of like Donald Trump saying, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to balance the budget by focusing on waste, fraud and abuse. Yeah, right. There's nothing that they can do about it. Unless you're honestly talking about abolishing entire departments, you're not talking about anything at all. It's are just blowing smoke. So anyway, this is going to be a major factor in the war. And I guess for all sides equally, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe it'll not change uh, the relative balance of power between the players, but it's sure going to change their absolute power. It already is. And I don't think any, you know, Abadi is the third dollar party prime minister in a row now, and I don't think anybody likes him at all. And he doesn't have the uh, strength that Maliki had to make anybody do what he says, and he doesn't know what he wants them to do anyway. Seems like the militias are running the war by themselves. Anyway, out of time. Uh Tune in Sunday morning. I'm going to record one with Patrick Coburn here in a minute.
2: All right, thanks, y'all. See ya.